This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be in dialogue today with August Magnuson. He is the author of Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox Thought, a Comparative Philosophical Analysis, published by Gorgias Press 2021. August, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Nice to meet you. Thanks. August is a senior lecturer at University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee and is the author of a wonderfully interesting book on the relationship between Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox theology. Um, I look forward to a fruitful conversation with him today and would love to maybe ask by starting off how did you discover Soren Kierkegaard? Can you tell the story? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I first read Kierkegaard as an undergraduate when I was uh, doing a bachelor's degree in philosophy at the University of Iceland. And uh, I can't even remember what classes class it was, uh, but I just remember the teacher um, had us, the professor of this course had us read Fear, read Fear and Trembling and uh, I remember the the professor of this particular course really did not like Kierkegaard. Like she presented the book as being this just terrifying, awful thing. <laughs> you know, this story of Abraham and Isaac is as being a really kind of a, I guess, an example of sort of, you know, some kind of horrible divine command theory. And, and uh, you know, this, this particular professor was very sort of militantly atheist. And so I don't think... Uh, uh, she had a particularly favorable view of Kierkegaard or Christianity in general. And, um, you know, I remember reading it and sort of being fascinated with it just because it was being presented in this sort of like weirdly negative light. Um, but I just, I didn't really understand it. It was just kind of baffling to me. And uh, so I just kind of kind of dismissed him and didn't really think about him for years after that. And it wasn't until after um, a lot of things had happened in my life and I had converted to Christianity myself several years later that when I was in graduate school, I encountered him again. And then all of a sudden he just blew my mind. You know, we read the concluding unscientific postscript and the philosophical fragments and sickness unto death. And, and then I returned again to fear and trembling. And I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> so, um, and he really just resonated very deeply with me because um, after having gone through this really kind of tumultuous spiritual journey myself, he just, he seemed like kind of a fellow traveler, you know, this really kind of sensitive soul who was struggling with these questions about God and truth and 
how to find meaning and you know like so many other people i was just fascinated with them so that came in very handy when it came time to choose this patient subject <laughs> i was like this is my guy do you have any favorite pieces of kierkegaard's writings are there any pieces that particularly speak to you the most to share a personal story i discovered purity of heart is to will one thing on the bookshelf of a graduate student in Jerusalem with whom I felt spent the Sabbath in the summer of 2012. I was just curious about the title, so I pulled it off his, off his shelf. It was one of the books that I could not put down. Um, I was so gripped. Have you had any similar experiences with any works of Kierkegaard? Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, so after I kind of rediscovered him, I almost feel like most of his works are like that. <laughs> I just... I tore through most of his of his works that he published, but if, if I had to pick a favorite, it's probably Fear and Trembling. Um, although there are passages in the Sickness unto Death that just leveled me because I recognize so much of myself in those passages. Like because the Sickness unto Death, he's just analyzing these different kinds of despair. So he's actually sort of taking you into the depths of the human soul and looking at all the the darkness <laughs> I can sort of live there. And, um, and, and also, it, you know, but at the same time, it's very hopeful. He's sort of saying that, you know, if you face up to these things, there's all this healing that's available to you. And there were especially certain parts of that book that just resonated really, really deeply with me. It just, it seemed like he was writing for me. But I mean, he's one of those authors where I think a lot of people have that experience. It's almost like this book was written particularly for you and for your particular situation. I mean, that's why he's a genius. Can you comment on how you personally came to Christianity and Eastern Orthodox Christianity? Do you feel comfortable sharing your personal journey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I I grew up uh, pretty much just kind of agnostic, atheist. Um, you know, I grew up in a culture which is very, very secular and um, there's sort of a kind of a cultural Christianity that's present, but my family certainly never really practiced any religion. Um, and when I was younger, I, I was kind of committed to just this sort of atheistic materialism, um, kind of <laughs> basic metaphysics that I could cling to. And then, um, but I was also, you know, I started studying philosophy uh, because you know, to deal with certain kinds of personal struggles and issues. I was going through an existential crisis, basically. And as I read more and more philosophy, I started becoming more and more open to other ways of understanding reality. It was basically after reading Plato, Plato's Republic, that I, I kind of started thinking that, you know, the kind of reductionism in materialism just wasn't enough. It's like this doesn't account for reality, like the way I experience the world. So you know, I was like, well, that means that I kind of need to start exploring other options. So, so I kind of went religion shopping. <laughs> and so started exploring all these different traditions. And uh, I actually ended up in, in Buddhism, like a lot of sort of spiritually wandering Westerners these days, and uh, tried my best to sort of practice within a particular kind of Buddhist tradition, a Zen Buddhist tradition, which was immensely helpful and beautiful. Um, but ultimately, um, life took me sort of in another direction because um, I was an exchange student in the U.S. Uh, in 2004 
and uh, took up like a bunch of different classes. And one of them was this class um, on the philosophy of mysticism. And I primarily took it because the syllabus included quite a bit of stuff on Buddhism. And I was like, oh, this is great. I can learn all this stuff about this tradition I'm interested in. Um, but then the the professor, uh, whose name is Bruce Foltz, he, he actually turned out to be Eastern Orthodox and he included a lot of these Eastern Christian mystical writings and I was just like, oh, my God, like, what is this stuff? Because I was actually kind of, I was kind of uh, uh, sort of anti-Christian almost. Um, you know, when I was looking at all these different religions, I never considered Christianity because I'd always been exposed to sort of the, the worst aspects of it. Just sort of the most judgmental sort of elements of it that you see in the media and sort of around you. Because I didn't really know anybody who was really a practicing Christian. And so... When I started reading this stuff, I was just so dumbstruck by how beautiful it was. I just, I couldn't believe it. And so it offered a very sort of an alternative uh, view of the human mind and of consciousness and of metaphysics and everything from this Buddhist stuff that I've been studying. And, and sort of, you know, little by little, I just started becoming completely enamored with it. And, uh, and it kind of just went from there. Then I just, uh, little by little, kind of found myself practicing it. I just found myself praying. And it resonated with me very, very deeply. And uh, then I spent some time uh, kind of traveling around, trying to <laughs> learn in a more practical way about the tradition. So I started going through different churches and, and seeing different services. And ultimately, I spent a little bit of time at a monastery in California, uh, right outside of San Francisco, an Orthodox monastery, and saw people living this stuff out. And, uh, and that sort of you know, eventually I just decided, I think this is the path. This is the thing for me. And, uh, you know, so I, I was baptized in 2005. What drew you to Eastern Orthodox Christianity in particular, as opposed to other Christian denominations? What was your conversion process like? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was because it had all this correspondence with this, um, these kind of Asian religions that I've been studying, you know, like Hinduism and Buddhism, because, um, Christianity is kind of tricky because it asks a lot of us with regards to sort of the basic proclamations of the faith, you know, this stuff about the Trinity and, you know, the incarnation and stuff like that. But um, these Eastern traditions I was studying, they kind of started with this focus on practice, like meditation and yoga and these contemplative practices. And that's also what I found in Eastern Orthodoxy. Like it's such a focus on just like stuff that you do. So you can you you can just go in and you can learn these different methods of contemplative prayer and you know you can uh, there's all these um, things you can do with regards to asceticism like fasting and and then the services are very um, embodied and hands on you know there's all these icons and incense and beautiful art and you know you're using your body in the in the worship and so even though I didn't understand a lot of these Christian doctrines and ideas I. Um, I could sort of start living them. I could start entering into them. And I think I think that really helped me. I think that was the thing that drew me in particular to that tradition, um, where it was so immediately existential. Which mystical texts most attracted you in your early journey towards Orthodox Christianity? Uh, well, there was, yeah, there was quite a few. It was primarily, there's this collection of writings by this... Um, by this sort of, I guess you call it medieval theologian, uh, Saint Simeon, the new theologian. Um, so it, he he has this uh, collection of writings called the Hymns of Divine Love, 
And there's just basically this collection of poetry. But that is some of the most mind-blowing stuff that I have ever seen. I mean, it was just, it's so intense. And it was such a different mysticism from this, uh, from these Asian traditions that I've been encountering, like with the Buddhist and Hindu stuff, which I, I still find really beautiful. But this was like a different, um, it's a different language, a different way in which to experience the, the, the I guess you'd call it the mystical. There was just this sort of um, intensity to it. I mean, you know, because St. Simeon, especially, you know, he's talking about this idea of almost like this erotic kind of love that manifests itself in terms of your relationship to the divine. So rather than be it a, being about this sort of um, quietude, you know, and sort of absolute um, internal stillness or whatever it was that I was seeking in Buddhism, there was something kind of ec ecstatic about it. And that that really kind of, uh, that really got me and really uh, helped me a lot. So that one was a big one. But I think, I mean, of all the stuff I read, I think that the biggest influence on me was probably reading Dostoevsky, actually. I think reading the works of Dostoevsky was probably the thing that finally pushed me over the edge with regards to my conversion. And I, I think Dostoevsky is kind of a, kind of a mystic <laughs> in his own right. What was your early life like in Iceland? What are some of the distinctive features of Icelandic Christianity? How did you experience Christianity in Iceland vis-a-vis -vis what you later came to in Orthodox Christianity? Well, so, um, well, like I said, I mean, mostly I just saw Christianity in Iceland as just being this kind of cultural phenomenon. I mean, so we have a state church in Iceland, the Evangelical Lutheran Church. So it's just literally sort of a part of the, you know, uh, of the government. So a part of your taxes goes to pay for the church. Um, and so a lot of people have their kids baptized in the church or, you know, you might get married in one and have a funeral. But um, there's not a whole lot of, you know, actual kind of religious activity. People actually sort of worshiping, you know, being a part of the Christian life. I mean, it's 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 the very definition of what Kierkegaard was talking about when he was talking about Christendom. I mean, modern Scandinavian Christianity is exactly that. It's just this sort of this kind of bourgeois sort of sort of way, which where it's just the default. This is just the norm. And uh, so I was I was baptized and eventually confirmed in this church, but I didn't really believe in any of it. It's just what you did, and um, and so it was just. Um, you know, not I didn't really have a whole lot of engagement with it in that way. And I mean, even to the extent that people that were outwardly religious and, and pious were considered to be very kind of strange in, you know, in that culture and, and almost kind of scary. Like it was sort of like, oh, like, <laughs> you know, if anybody thought, you know, if you really want to make a Scandinavian uncomfortable, start talking about religion. Um, but, you know, my, you know, my life was pretty normal. It was sort of kind of lower middle class and um it was uh you know it was a really interesting time in iceland the the, the country was changing a whole lot it was becoming a lot more prosperous and access to way more sort of comforts and technology and um but i mean one of the things that really kind of defined my life was that you know in spite of living a very nice sort of safe kind of middle class existence you know when i was in my teens and early adulthood, um, I started experiencing like really, really heavy bouts of depression and anxiety. 
Um, and that really became sort of a defining component because most of my life after that was sort of searching for a way to deal with that, uh, which is why I was attracted to people like Kierkegaard, because obviously <laughs> there was a guy who had dealt with stuff like that. Um, so that was sort of what led me to studying philosophy and ultimately all this interest in religion. And it was sort of a way in which to try to kind of heal myself. Um, so I think that was, you know, one of the one of the things that really defined who I am, uh, for better or for worse. Speaking of which, what are the similarities and differences between Kierkegaard's view of anxiety and Eastern Orthodox thinkers' view of anxiety? How have Eastern Orthodox thinkers perceived fear? And how is this different from Kierkegaard's view? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, so I think, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, first of all, like when we talk about anxiety, it's sort of a tricky word because anxiety is often the way in which we're translating what Kierkegaard is talking about when he talks about angst, like angst, <laughs> anguish. So anxiety really isn't a great translation of that. But I mean, it, it's it's certainly related. Um, I, I think, you know, if I start with talking about Kierkegaard, I think what he's doing is trying to analyze the way in which human beings sort of experience their own self and the pain that comes with that. Uh, he's really trying to analyze it in terms of especially our experience of freedom, you know, because like just given the kind of consciousness that we have, we, you know, we experience the world in terms of this horizon of possibilities. Like you, you, you kind of have to, as a human being, you have to kind of define yourself. Like you have to discover yourself. Like the self is a dynamic process of becoming, according to Kierkegaard. And that's often a painful process. It's hard to do that. It's hard to figure out who you are or what to do. And so that, I, that seems to be a big part of what he means by this, this angst, this angst, anguish, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. And it's not a bad thing. Like this is the thing that you know, allows us to, to live such dynamic, beautiful lives. But it is also often very painful because in choosing something, you're choosing yourself. Like there's so much at stake <laughs> with all of our choices. And so I think that's sort of the way in which he's trying to analyze this. This is the, this is the analysis that I think influences the later philosophical tradition, like existentialism so heavily. This is the stuff that Heidegger and Sartre and Camus and all these people are picking up on later. Um, with regards to the Orthodox tradition, um, you know, you have writings even in the ancient world where they're talking about things like what we would call anxiety or depression or whatever. Uh, and they're using a slightly different language for it. But you see this a lot in the monastic literature. I mean, they're talking about things like fear. They're talking about things like meaninglessness, uh, acedia, listlessness. Um, and so they're talking about it in a very kind of therapeutic sort of way and trying to understand it in terms of these different kinds of spiritual activities. And so um, primarily there, um, I think in Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, they're trying to analyze the way in which certain thought patterns condition us to act in certain ways. This is what the Greek tradition calls logis point. These sort of like this conditioning that occurs through these obsessions and attachments that occur within the mind that make us constantly hurt ourselves and other people around us, you know, through our, you know, selfishness and, and, and narcissism, self-pity and fear, whatever it is. And so, um, so the way in which they're talking about it, they're always, they're always trying to see sort of like, well, how can you start to sort of deconstruct these different kinds of thought patterns, these logismoi through practices like prayer or 
um, certain kinds of contemplative practices through asceticism, through this kind of sacramental life that you can be a part of. Um, so there's certainly like the Eastern Orthodox approach and Kierkegaard's approach are related. I just think that Kierkegaard is talking about this in a way that is so deeply resonant to modern people, because one of the things that he's pointing out is that in the in the modern world, in this sort of post-enlightenment, technologic, technologically driven world that we live in, there's going to be a lot of anxiety. <laughs> this, this is just going to be a huge part of what it means to be human. And so he's trying to figure out, well, what does that really mean? Like, what, what does it mean to, to live in that state, that, that sort of dizziness, this almost like kind of nauseous state of being constantly trying to figure out who you are and what to do? And uh, so I think, I think he's just, he's really, really good um, as somebody to kind of give you guidance with regards to how to view this stuff in kind of a, in, in sort of almost a positive light, you know, that, that, that there's something about feelings of, of dread or anxiety, which are understandable. You know, uh, in, in many cases, if people have something like a generalized anxiety disorder that should be treated, you know, you need to go to a professional. But I think all of us experience that to some extent or another. We experience anxiety or, or dread or alienation. So he's trying to say, well, those those moments when you're feeling that they're sort of moments of opportunity. Those are the moments when you can really figure out who you are. Um, and so that that I find very beautiful in him. How do Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox theologians differ or overlap in their understanding of knowledge? Can you elucidate? Yeah, he's, um, yeah, I, so I claim in this book that they overlap a lot. I, I see a lot of connections. Um, so primarily what I think with regards to trying to understand the, the Eastern Christian approach to knowledge I kind of think that you have to go back to Plato and Aristotle. I mean, you know, the Christian tradition is so deeply indebted to the metaphysics and epistemology of the ancient Greek world. I mean, they're taking all of the terminology and appropriating it in a certain kind of way, but changing it at the same time. And so, so Plato, um, in especially in the Republic, but in several of his dialogues, he, he's trying to talk about sort of different kinds of knowledge. He's really interested in that. And so one of the most important distinctions that he makes is between these things he calls dianoia and noesis. So dianoia is this faculty of like discursive rationality, like kind of systematic sort of scientific thinking, um, which is what we're doing when we do, you know, science or metaphysics, philosophy, logic. But then this idea of noesis, that's what he means when we're sort of connecting to these kind of higher realities, something transcendent, the, what for him is the realm of the forms. So these, especially these Eastern Christian authors, I think really, really run with this and really kind of treat seriously this idea that there's some kind of higher kind of intuitive, mystical intellect that human beings have, that we're not limited to just our rational discursive faculties. And so the way in which they, they try to cast this out is that this, this noose, this higher intellect, this thing sort of gets clouded. Like it's not really active in us most of the time because we're so fixated on, on the world around us, sort of what is kind of immediately apparent to us. Like the things that we can kind of take and pick apart and categorize in certain kinds of ways, right? And that we're constantly trying to sort of like control and dominate these things that we can understand in this particular way. I mean, this is... You know, this is sort of the history of just the, the Western philosophical and scientific tradition, but that there's something over and beyond that. There's something where 
human beings can sort of engage with the world in a much more vulnerable, relational, immediate sort of way, especially when it comes to the, the highest realities, you know, um, connecting to other people, connecting to God, to nature in a way which is uh, which is much more based on sort of on on personhood and based on our immediate sort of intimate connection to the world around us. And so I, there's a lot of beautiful writings in the Eastern tradition about this, but I think this is connected to what Kierkegaard is talking about um, when he makes this distinction between subjective and objective knowledge. So Kierkegaard famously like makes this really important distinction between these two categories of knowledge. And uh, because he in the time that he was writing in the 19th century, what he calls objective knowledge, this kind of purely systematic view of reality, which was becoming so dominant through, you know, the influence of people like Descartes and Kant and especially Hegel. I mean, Hegel at his time was, you know, really the philosopher to deal with, which Kierkegaard wrote a lot about. But it was this idea that you could create this sort of Wissenschaft, you know, this system the science of everything that we could figure it all out that through our ingenuity and our rationality and our technology that we could sort of crack the code of reality itself through our different economic systems and our different technological systems what have you and uh Kierkegaard was somebody who saw this as being really dangerous he was somebody who thought like these systems are always going to reduce human beings to nothing but functions within those systems you know so you know, whatever that system is, whether, you know, it's capitalism or communism or whatever ism <laughs> we're going to come up with. And so he thought that that we also need to engender and and focus on this idea of this sort of subjective knowledge, like the knowledge that comes from like being this particular unique individual and the way in which I, as this particular being, am engaging with the world in this more kind of relational intimate sort of way. And I, I, I see that as being very deeply connected to this ancient uh, Eastern Christian tradition where they're talking about they're talking about the noose in this particular way. And I think for both Orthodoxy and Kierkegaard, I think they come to the same conclusion that is that the ultimate form of knowledge is, is love. That to, to really know something, you need to love it, um, which I I find so beautiful. Like that's such a great alternative to the way in which we usually think about knowledge and in philosophy. <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of which, can you comment on how Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox thinkers approach love? What does your book teach us about love? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so I think what I think what's so fascinating about both of them about the Eastern Orthodox tradition and, and about Kierkegaard's writings is that I think that they're both saying that love is constitutive of our being, you know, that, there, that there's an ontological dimension to love. It's, it's not just an emotion or some kind of feeling, you know, even though Kierkegaard was writing during this era where romanticism was becoming a very dominant form within literature, um, I think I think he was resisting some of that sort of like purely romanticized sort of sentimental view of love. And I think that's very much in line with the way in which traditional Christianity, whether East or West, has thought about love. Like love is something way beyond that. Like love is has something to do with the very foundation of reality, you know, because God is ultimately viewed as being love. 
like the the very subsistence of our being. And so um, I think Kierkegaard also, like one of the things that um, he was trying to point out and what I hope maybe people would get from this book is that he saw love, I think, as a kind of an alternative to the the sort of alienation, the sort of crushing, oppressive alienation that occurs in modernity, in the modern world. Because he, he thought that all of these different, like what the modern world tends to do to us with all of its, again, all of its different systems and institutions and all these different things, some of which are good, they can be really overwhelming and they can sort of reduce us to being nothing but this sort of cog in a machine. <laughs> just, you don't know really like who you are or what you're doing. You're, you're just functioning within this thing. You know, you're just functioning as a consumer or just functioning as a, you know, member of this particular group or whatever. And so he thought that love was a way in which to really manifest who we are in a much more, you know, as these particular unique individuals in relationships. Um, so he talks about, you know, he uses this word, uh, which is, you know, a very deep kind of love. It's it's sort of similar to what the, the Christian tradition calls agape, you know, the Greek word agape, meaning this sort of like love that is for human beings not in an abstract sort of sense but in a very real intimate sort of sense because it's very easy to talk about like loving humanity (laughs) or or like loving the poor or something like those are abstract concepts like those belong to what he would call the ethical sphere but he he thought you kind of need to go beyond that like you need to be able to like love people like actual human beings that you encounter and all their messiness and with all their problems, like that's the harder trick. And that's the thing that you kind of, you almost kind of need to train yourself to be able to do that through this sort of what he calls this practice in Christianity. So I, I definitely see a lot of correspondence between the way he talks about love and how this, you know, more ancient Christian uh, tradition does it. How is apophasis understood differently in Kierkegaard vis-a-vis Eastern Orthodox thinkers? Well, so, I mean, so in the book, I do try to sort of point out that there are elements in Kierkegaard that I think you can consider to be almost mystical. Um, And probably a lot of people would disagree with me on this. Um, But I I think you can make that case. And I try to do that in this book. And because I I think in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the apophatic way, this sort of way of negation, the via negativa, primarily has to do with this sort of mystical kind of knowledge. It's this idea that that normally we're, we're constantly, again, yeah. we're constantly trying to have these sort of affirmations of reality in and through some kinds of conceptual arrangements. <laughs> we're constantly trying to like fit everything into these neat little boxes uh, that we can decipher or quantify or analyze. But that that ultimately reality isn't like that. Like reality never really fits completely into those boxes. Like it's always more ambiguous and messier than that. And so the, the apophasis, the way of negation, with regards to God or with regards to just the world around us, is sort of a, a way in which to try to sort of break down or deconstruct some of these systems that we rely on so much. Um, it's a way in which to sort of like quiet all of these different thoughts and all of these different like, obsessions with like figuring stuff out and slicing and dicing the world up, especially when it comes to our attempts to try to understand God, 
you know, that we could, <laughs> that we could have these like positive, like these systems, this science, sciencia of God, you know, the apophatic way of saying, no, you can't, you can't do that. Ultimately, you just have to fall silent before the mystery. You just have to enter into it. Um, you have to be able to kind of, to, to, to become vulnerable before it, um, to kind of stand naked before this, this, this mystery, this awe-inspiring mystery. And I, I really see Kierkegaard sort of trying to say the same thing. He's just using an entirely different terminology and just different language. Um, ultimately, he, he does want to try to lead people to that place of being able to kind of, and, and neither one of these traditions is saying that rationality or, or systematic thinking is bad. I think I think both Kierkegaard and the Eastern Orthodox tradition are just saying there's something beyond that. There's something even greater than that. Something more beautiful, um, like a lot of you know the great world religions have been teaching us. So, I, I think I think they're pretty much uh, aligned on that. But I think uh, that being said, the Eastern Orthodox tradition is much more explicitly mystical. I mean, it's just this idea that you can engage in certain kinds of contemplative um, activities. And it, it, there's a kind of an apophatic process that occurs. And you will experience the divine energies of God directly. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that Kierkegaard would be comfortable with that kind of language. <laughs> for him, I think for him, it's more sort of existentially and psychologically focused for the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I think they're, they're, they're liter they literally mean that this apophasis can sort of quiet these different thoughts in the mind and that you can have this divine uh, encounter. Um, you know, in a very, very kind of uh, immediate sort of way. How do Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox theologians differ or overlap in their understanding of piety? Can you explain? Yeah, that's pr that's probably the, <laughs> so the last part of my book. Um, I tried to get them a little bit closer together, but that's probably where the biggest difference lies with regards to somebody like Kierkegaard versus something like the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, because it kind of depends a little bit of, you know, upon what you mean by piety. So Kierkegaard was really, really suspicious of any kind of sort of purely external pietism. Um, you know, this idea where you're just you know, going along and you're just doing the things that you're supposed to do within a religious tradition. Um, you're just kind of going, you know, by the numbers, like, okay, like, yeah, you get your kid baptized in a church because that's what you're supposed to do. You get confirmed or you get married or whatever it is. And he's like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what, you know, why are people doing this? Like th there needs to be something inward. There needs, to, this needs to be transformative with regards to who you are as a human being. So he saw a real kind of danger in this kind of religiosity that people often use to avoid an actual encounter with God. And um, but that being said, at the same time, he was addressing a really specific time and place. Like he was, uh, you know, really addressing the situation in 19th century Denmark, which extends to the modern world. Like I, like I said, I think I grew up in a culture very similar to what Kierkegaard is talking about. But like it's that kind of, again, this sort of like purely kind of bourgeois sort of version of Christendom. Just people like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, of course, you know, because you grow up in that kind of culture and just accept it unthinkingly. And that's it. And he's like that. That's actually really spiritually and psychologically dangerous. 
But that being said, that doesn't mean that he dismisses piety altogether. He took um, worship really seriously, and he thought a lot about it. His journals are filled with his writings about piety and about the sacraments, about worship, about going to church or not going to church. And, you know, for example, for a long period in his life, he didn't receive communion because he, he had such a um, tense relationship with the Danish Lutheran Church. But at some point, he decided to go back and to receive communion. And he struggled with this for a long time. It, it tortured him whether or not this was the right thing to do. So obviously, this is not a person who is just dismissive of piety or worship or sacraments or anything like that. Um, I mean, the, the Eastern Orthodox um, position um, is, is less tortured <laughs> than Kierkegaard. I mean, I think, I mean, the nice thing about Eastern Orthodoxy is that it's one of those traditions where they're kind of saying that, like, you know, um, piety is really a way in which to enter into the deepest truth of the tradition. You know, it's just, you know, venerating icons and lighting candles and especially the sacraments. I mean, these really reveal the fullness of the faith, you know, that you're participating in something purely transcendent, you know, something that is over and beyond the everyday reality that we experience and that you don't have to understand all of these things. You know, it's like, um, you know, like the idea of the, the Eucharist in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you don't have any kind of like systematic metaphysical explanation of what is happening there. Like you have in Roman Catholicism, you know, this idea of transubstantiation or something like that. Like the Eastern Orthodox are just perfectly fine with saying, no, it's a, it's a mystery. Like there's no way that we can explain what's happening here. You, you have to enter into it and experience it by actually participating in it. And so, um, so I don't know. I think, I think for both, you know, it's probably kind of similar. I mean, you know, I think Kierkegaard is right. If it's purely just this external religiosity, that's, that's a bad thing. But these things, if they're appropriated correctly, can be this pathway into the deepest mysteries. But that, a lot of that depends on your own sort of internal configuration and appropriation of that. But yeah, the, I think the Eastern Orthodox position is a little bit more just like, <laughs> you know, if you do these things with faith and with love, then, you know, that is a path towards a certain kind of salvation. How is guilt understood differently or similarly in Eastern Orthodox theology vis-a-vis -vis Kierkegaard? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so... I think primarily the first thing to say is that Eastern Orthodox Christianity, I think, understands guilt very differently from other kinds, uh, from sort of the Protestant and, and Roman Catholic views of guilt, at least, you know, the way in which they are often presented. Because what happens in the, the Latin church, the Western church, is that because of the, the culture that they're writing in and because of certain issues having to do with language and certain kinds of philosophical presuppositions, the, the language around sin and guilt becomes much more juridical in Western Christianity. It's sort of, it's more legalistic. It's focused on actions, you know, like that there's certain actions that you do and bad actions that produce this sort of guilt um, you know, you're guilty before God. And this leads to these different theories about these ideas of atonement, for example, you know, the sort of atonement theology, where there's no way to sort of purge the guilt. And so God has to offer this sacrifice, his only begotten son, in order for human beings to be sort of freed from this guilt. You don't see that kind of language in the Eastern Church. Um, guilt is always viewed in a in much more sort of 
you know, their language is much more therapeutic rather than this kind of juridical language. Um, they view guilt as being much more ontological, you know, that, that, that it's affecting the entire person. We're not just looking at this in sort of legalistic terms of so you did these bad things, but it has to do with, it's almost like this illness or the sickness that is affecting the human being. And that the, the life of the church, the spiritual life, is a way in which to heal that. It's a way in which to sort of um, undergo this transformation whereby this is released. So there's much less of a, a focus on this kind of language of, of guilt and shame in Eastern Orthodoxy in general. And I, I, at least, and I'm talking here also just from experience, not just from um, kind of an intellectual abstract background, but you know, when you talk to uh, spiritual guides in Eastern Orthodoxy, like a lot of them will sort of say that guilt is really kind of a waste of time. <laughs> it's sort of, it's almost sinful in itself to be sort of wallowing in this stuff because you're supposed to be using the different elements of, of the faith and the practices to, to move beyond this, to sort of be, be healed of this stuff. Um, so I, I think Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard is a little bit more obsessed with guilt than most Eastern Orthodox Christians I mean, he, he is, as much as he criticizes this Lutheran tradition that, that he was um, living amongst, he is nonetheless a part of it. I mean, he comes out of that tradition. And, um, you know, that, that tradition had a lot more emphasis on this idea of, of guilt, you know, in that kind of heavy sort of psychological way. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, Luther described human beings, I think, at one time as being you know, snow-covered piles of dung. <laughs> you know, that's just, that, that we're really just this kind of crap, the dung, and that the grace of Christ, you know, is the snow that covers us over. But really underneath it, we really are just this kind of, this messy, nasty thing. And so, I mean, that's sort of the tradition, I think, that Kierkegaard was coming out of, and he critiques it, but he's often really racked with guilt and struggling with it um because i think in the eastern orthodox tradition they would say like no we're not just you know we turn into the snow like you know the dung is turned into the snow like whatever christ does to us transforms us we're sort of deified you know and become purified um and so i i think that there this is one of the places where there is a significant difference between Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, that being said, Kierkegaard does also try to use guilt in positive ways. Like he does talk about it as an existential category that allows us to deepen our sense of self. You know, guilt is one of these things that allows us to move from one stage of life to another. So he thinks that, you know, he, he, he talks about moving from what he calls the aesthetic sphere, which is very kind of immature and all about this sort of immediacy, all about sort of trying to gratify yourself to the ethical sphere and then to the religious sphere. Guilt is a big part of that movement. It's a big part of what allows you to recognize that your life is kind of superficial and that you're not being the person that you could be. But, but that being said, just reading Kierkegaard's journals, you know, and his more kind of reflective writings, it's obvious that he struggled a great deal with guilt. Um, you know, it really kind of tortured him. How have modern and medieval Eastern Orthodox thinkers perceived nihilism? How is this attitude similar or different from Kierkegaard's? Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So the, it's kind of, that's a tricky question to answer because I think the way in which we talk about nihilism in the modern world is a modern phenomenon. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that if you read any kind of like ancient or medieval writings, that you really get people talking about what we would call nihilism. They, they, they may be talking about it in a purely individualistic sense in terms of sort of, um, again, these uh, kind of an individual feeling um, meaninglessness or listlessness or depression or something like that. Uh, you certainly get that in some of the monastic literature. But if you're talking about nihilism in this grander sense that I think we often talk about it you know, today as this sort of kind of all-encompassing sort of worldview and, and this thing that, that you know, kind of infuses every aspect of, of modern existence, you know, this, this threat to meaning, like, does any of this mean anything, right? I think that's a, a really kind of particularly modern phenomenon. Um, and I think that's, that is why Kierkegaard is so fantastic, um, because he's somebody who saw that coming, even before a lot of these famous people that wrote about nihilism, like Nietzsche or even Dostoevsky, right, in Russia. Um, because he, I think he saw that, like, that all this stuff we were doing in the 19th century, it was not necessarily going to lead to a utopia. Like, that's what so many people believed. Like, we're just going to develop all these technologies and all the science, and we're going to solve all the problems. <laughs> we're going to... We're going to solve, you know, hunger and war and we're just going to fix it all. And he's like, no, I don't think so. I think I think that some really spooky stuff is about to happen because all the traditions and all the stuff that we had been using as blueprints, as guidelines for how to live and how to have meaning and purpose and beauty in our lives. I mean, a lot of those are being thrown out the window. You know, they were kind of being replaced by something else. And and there was kind of an absence there. There was an absence of like, what is it that we truly believe? Like, what does it mean to be a good human being? What does it mean to live a life of beauty and worth? And and he was, I think, Kierkegaard, just like Nietzsche later, was kind of saying like, well, we kind of don't have anything in, in the place of the stuff that we're removing from our lives. And so so I think I think he was really, really interested in this idea of nihilism, I think it scared him a great deal. I, th I, I think that when he looked at all these fantastic philosophical systems that were coming along, like Hegel's, I think he believed that it was going to make a lot of people lose their faith in themselves and in the world. And that, you know, no amount of ingenuity or philosophical sophistication was going to really allow us to, to have the kind of meaning that we had had sort of in, in earlier ages, where we kind of had a better sense of kind of what it meant to be human and you know that we had a certain kind of compass for how to live um but certainly there are there are modern orthodox theologians that do talk about um nihilism um david bentley hart is a modern orthodox theologian that has really tried to talk about nihilism uh but yeah but i think you really kind of need to go to the the more kind of the modern world but certainly dostoevsky did too he, he certainly was really interested in in that particular problem. <laughs> How do Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox thinkers differ or overlap in their understanding of self or quote unquote self? Can you elaborate? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the fascinating thing I think is that, I mean, when we talk about the self, which is kind of like the ultimate philosophical mystery, I think Christianity is such an important thing to consider in seeing how we begin to talk philosophically about the self, because um, so much of philosophy before Christianity wasn't that interested in the self, like in the person, 
<laughs> like, you know, like Plato or Aristotle or the Stoics, like that's not really what they're interested in. Like they're much more interested in trying to figure out like ways in which we can understand universals, like the, the, the sort of essence or nature of things. But I think Christianity really becomes interested in this because they have this really peculiar, bizarre idea that God is three persons. Like there, there are three selves that exist within God in this eternal communion. So that means that you're going to have to develop a philosophy of the self, of a personal. Um, and so they do that in a really interesting way. So they, they basically, you know, take this Greek word prosopon, which, you know, you see in, in Homer, for example, which really just means sort of the face or the role or the mask that a person plays. And they, they view that as being sort of metaphysically central. Like they, they now say like, this isn't just the role you play, who you are is the center of your being. Just like as for the father, son, and Holy spirit, like, the center of their being isn't some necessarily some essence that they share in common, but rather the way in which they commune with each other in this eternal love. And so that, that I think, um, is super important because I think Christianity is really central in trying to, to sort of develop uh, a kind of a philosophy of personhood, a very robust philosophy of personhood um, through the ages, and that Modern Orthodox theologians like John Zizioulas, um, this Greek theologian, they kind of, you know, they they talk about this idea of the self as being, you know, as it being fundamentally relational, you know, that our the essence of our existence is manifest in and through communion, through our relationships to each other, in and through love primarily. And I, I and this is the thing that I was trying to do in this book too, is that I was trying to show that like I think Kierkegaard is totally saying that too. Like he is somebody who sees the self as this dynamic process of becoming. It's not this static thing. It's not just this like this essence or a soul or something. Um, but it's rather this this really dynamic, messy thing that is constantly evolving in and through our choices, primarily. I mean, this is why Kierkegaard is sort of this kind of proto-existentialist. But I think that is totally in line with what the ancient Christian tradition was talking about. Like it's it's in and through your choices and in and through your activities and your commitments to, to a certain kind of life that you you become who you are. You know, that, you know, it's not just, you can't just look at this sort of static, you know, nature or essence or form or something. You, you have to talk about this in much more intricate psychological terms. And so, you know, that's, that's why I think Kierkegaard is so cool. He's sort of a you know, not only in tune with this ancient Christian tradition and sort of continuing that, but he's also, you know, prefiguring the kind of psychological developments that occur later in the 19th century and the 20th century with people like Freud and Jung and Lacan and people like that. So, so yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that answers that question. <laughs> How does your book advance our understanding of trauma? How is deep suffering understood in Kierkegaard and in Eastern Orthodox thought? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I do, I talk a lot about suffering in this book because I think it's central to certainly Kierkegaard, but I think all of Christianity really, because I, I mean, so this was, this was a really striking thing to me when I converted to Christianity was that, um, I think what Christianity is saying is that, that, you know, suffering is something that we need to pass through and that ultimately, um, can be sort of transfigured. And, and become something that allows us to be transfigured, which is very different. Before I was Christian, I was practicing in this Buddhist tradition. And I think 
I think, as I understood Buddhism, there was kind of a promise there that you could sort of extinguish suffering. You could, <laughs> you could kind of overcome it. I think that's sort of, to some extent, what they mean by nirvana, um, which literally means to extinguish, to blow something out. And I think it's sort of suffering primarily as you're trying to extinguish. But I think what Christianity is saying is that that's that's not really the case. Um, you know, you can kind of see this in the different iconography between those two traditions. You have, on the one hand, the Buddha, who is sort of in this complete serene meditation, often in Buddhist iconography, versus Christ on the cross. <laughs> he's just beaten and bloodied, and you know, he's he's in the suffering. You know, so it's a really different way to think about those things. And and I remember being so struck by this because it was sort of this idea that. Christ's suffering on the cross is is sort of manifesting to some extent the suffering of humanity. And there's this idea that by passing through suffering, by entering into it, by fully facing it, rather than trying to eliminate it or running away from it, like that's the thing that can lead us to some kind of healing and salvation. And um, so I think that's sort of the, the core component of this. Um, and I think Kierkegaard is definitely very much in tune with that like Kierkegaard just like with something like guilt suffering is something that allows you to grow as a person and to become who you are so like he talks about people in this stage that he calls the aesthetic stage which is the stage of immediacy of just like trying to have fun and just moving from one thing to another um just this sort of kind of cynical I guess sort of very modern kind of lifestyle. You're just, you know, you go from one job to another, one person to another, one place to another. You're always just trying to sort of like fulfill yourself. And when you get bored with something, you go to the next thing. But ultimately, very often that kind of life does lead to a certain kind of like existential suffering, like a kind of a deep sense that something is missing. It certainly did for me. <laughs> you know, I had, a, you know, I tried sort of every, every, you know, way in which to kind of gratify myself in that way. And they all failed. And then at some point you think there has to be something more than this. There has to be something deep. And so if you if you kind of sit with that suffering and you pass through it, it will lead you to the possibility of a of a deeper kind of life. You know, the idea that you could make certain kinds of commitments to certain people or certain causes or a certain way of life. And that and that that in itself then, you know, also opens up other avenues of suffering, you know, like to truly love someone means that you're willing to suffer with rather than just running away as soon as things get hard. Right. Um, but, but again, it's, it's sort of a voluntary taking on of suffering in love that then transforms that suffering into something really profound and really beautiful. Um, so I think, I think when it comes to Kierkegaard, like, you know, for, if you are suffering in your life and you're, especially if you're going through that kind of like existential deep suffering, there's a lot of healing in reading that guy. I mean, he's he can really, there's something really therapeutic in a lot of these books. Why are Eastern Orthodox theologians on the margins of contemporary critical theory? Why are so few studied in popular academic discourses? Why are they ignored? And is there anything that can be done to rectify this? Yeah, no, they totally are. That's totally true. I mean, it's getting better. It's changing. Um, they are, you know, there's more and more, um, you know, Orthodox scholars, and they're becoming more and more a part of the conversation. But I mean, to some extent, it's just because Orthodoxy is sort of a relatively new cultural phenomenon in this part of the world. I mean, it's not really until you have all these people fleeing the communist persecution 
you know, going from Russia and then to Western Europe, you know, you had all these Orthodox scholars going to Paris and these different places. And then a lot of them are then coming to North America. But this is, you know, relatively recent in our history. So, I mean, that's one obvious reason. Um, I think another reason, though, is because I think that there has been a lack of kind of of reaching out, because, you know, for some reasons, because a lot of these Orthodox communities, whether you're talking about, you know, Greeks or Russians or whatever, they were very kind of insulated and, um, you know, maybe didn't quite engage with, you know, other faiths or other types of Christianity or with the scholarly world as much as they perhaps should have or could. Um, but that's something that has definitely been changing a lot in the past few decades uh, and it's getting better and better and better. But I still feel like we have a kind of a long way to go. There, there's still some elements of orthodoxy where people really resist ecumenism and really exist, uh, resist sort of, um, you know, engaging in a wider dialogue, which I think is a huge mistake, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed writing this book. I mean, it's sort of, I think this sort of um, comparative analysis where you take, you know, orthodoxy and something else and you really engage them, you know, put them together. I think that's beautiful thing I, I think there should be more of that where does Fyodor Dostoevsky fit into your discussion um to what degree should Dostoevsky be considered an eastern orthodox thinker and what ways do his literary and philosophical writings advance or contradict themes in traditional eastern orthodox thoughts how can we compare and contrast notes from underground with Sickness Unto Death by Kierkegaard. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think Dostoevsky is definitely an Orthodox thinker. I mean, I, for my money, if you really want to learn about Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, he's not a bad place to start. I mean, he, he was really the thing that pushed me over the edge with regards to converting to Orthodoxy, was reading the Brothers Karamazov. Like that thing, <laughs> like that, that was really not just intellectually or emotionally deep, but like it totally changed my life spiritually. And so I, because I think, you know, Dostoevsky was living at a time, you know, in that the sort of later part of the 19th century in Russia, where he also could see the writing on the wall. He could see what was about to happen with regards to the, all of these different philosophies and potential revolutions that were going to occur. And so he really, I think, needed to, to, try to figure out certain things about like, you know, what it means to be Russian, but also what it means to be Orthodox. And so I think a lot of his books are really kind of about that struggle. Um, and so many of the most beautiful, I think, and most profound depictions of Orthodox spiritual life can be found in Dostoevsky's books. But the way he presents them is always through these dialogues. So he, um, because really what he was doing was that he just creates this sort of almost like spiritual laboratory he just creates these characters and then just kind of lets them loose so you know and his characters are representing different ideas and, and, and different conflicts within themselves or in the world around them and then he's just sort of seeing like what would a character like this do in this kind of situation and that's sort of especially in the brothers karamasa like that's the thing and so i think in, in many ways like I don't think that there's any moments in Dostoevsky where he directly kind of contradicts like orthodox sort of standard orthodox theology, but he's just, he's viewing these issues from so many different angles. Like, it's interesting that 
uh, often in Dostoevsky's novels, the atheists are the ones that give the most beautiful speeches about faith. <laughs> and then, like, often it's like, uh, and the very religious characters are, are riddled with doubt. And I think that's what's great about it. Like, he's really showing you people rather than just these kind of abstract theological ideas. Um, so I think he's he's just he's absolutely fantastic with regards to trying to like actually understand like what what does this mean from an orthodox perspective to be to try to figure out what does it mean to love your fellow human beings what does it mean to try to be a good person as messed up as we are because he shows us in all of our ambiguities and all of our brokenness you know in the best sort of way and you know with regards to your the the second part of the question like those two books notes from underground and sickness unto death, right? Those were the two, those were the two, right? That you mentioned. Um, hmm. I think it, in many ways they're talking about the same stuff. It's just that one of them is doing it from the inside, and one of them is doing it from the outside, right? Because notes from underground is just one of the most incisive, horrifying depictions of the modern human psyche. It's just from the inside. It's just this person who is so riddled with neuroticism and doubt and anxiety, like. You know, and who, who wants so deeply to be better. He wants so deeply to to just get over himself and to not be riddled with all of these like constant thoughts and worries and you know this these the self-pity and all of this stuff that he's dealing with. And but he 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 finds no way out of it. He's stuck within himself. Like his own self becomes this sort of hell that he's stuck with it. And I think Kierkegaard was trying to analyze that in sickness unto death. I mean, the, the pseudonym that he uses for that book is anti-climacus. So John Climacus was this seventh century um, Christian writer who's often known as John of the Ladder, who describes this sort of spiritual ascension of this ladder, you know, as you progress through the spiritual life. So anti-climacus is going in the other direction. He's describing the descent into the deepest levels of despair so as as sickness unto death progresses you're, you go from very kind of superficial levels of despair and depression and anxiety and anguish and you go sort of like all the way down into the worst versions of that and that's really where he's kind of talking about that guy from notes from underground especially there's this there's this one passage in sickness unto death where he talks about this thing which he calls uh despair in defiance, you know, despair of the self in defiance, which is describing a person that deeply knows that all they need to do to be saved or to be healed is just to let go of their own misery, their own self-loathing, but refuses to do that in defiance. Like they're too scared to do it. They just say like, no, like if, if I let go of this, there will be nothing left. Like you identify so deeply with those kind of like that psychological torment like that's who i am so i can't let go of this i think that's i think dostoevsky was trying to do something similar in notes from underground and so kierkegaard is just analyzing that in a more kind of external systematic way in sickness of the death but what's so amazing is that i think you know most human beings to some extent can recognize some of these categories that both of these authors are talking about even though we may not be quite as pathetic as the, as the underground man uh this, you know, that level of, of self-awareness and self-consciousness and neuroticism, I think all of us deal with that constantly. How do Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox thinkers overlap or differ in their perspectives on death? Yeah, he, yeah, that's good. 
So I think Eastern Orthodox thinkers, like most Christian thinkers, you know, view they they view death, I think, deeply as something that has been overcome. Um, so I think I think if you really want to see the the sort of deepest representation of how Eastern Orthodoxy views death, you you could see that in the Pascha service, so the Easter services, Eastern Orthodoxy, like the Easter liturgy. Um, I think the um, I think because in that I think in the Pascha service in the liturgy, there's this real kind of emphasis on this idea that. Um, Christ has overcome death through his death. You know, there's this famous Paschal hymn, you know, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, you know, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. So it's this idea that death signifies, you know, the, this, the most horrible aspect of the fall, right? I mean, it's the thing that, that threatens not just our physical existence, but, you know, also everything having to do with any kind of meaning or purpose in our lives. And I think that there's this idea that, you know, the Christian story is about overcoming that, that, that Christ represents the possibility to overcome that, and that the, the Christian life uh, represents this idea that death becomes this passageway into something, into something greater. Um, now, that being said, um, you know, I think with Kierkegaard, the way he talks about death, and he does talk about it explicitly in a few places, he has this discourse at a gravesite, he calls it, so he's literally just standing by a grave and thinking about death. Um, it sounds kind of morbid, <laughs> but he thinks about death as he thinks about death and the knowledge of death as being something very important to us. You know that because that that the the knowledge that we will die it intensifies our life. That's what Kierkegaard says. It makes it it the the knowledge that we have this finitude um, really forces us to engage with ourselves and to develop as human beings. Um, and to to really move through what he calls these stages of life. Um, because, for example, like if you knew that you were never going to die, you could just stay in this thing that he calls the aesthetic stage. You could just continually just try out new foods and new types of liquor and new types of music. And, you know, you're like, but it's the reason why we know that life is going to end, that you kind of think like there has to be something more than this. This is kind of ridiculous. Like, what am I doing? There, there has to be something deeper. And so the, the knowledge of death is something that we do need to keep in mind, not in any sort of morbid way, but it's something that gives us that kind of inward passion to become who we are, um, rather than just staying in this sort of static state that we're stuck in. Um, so, so weirdly, I think, um, you know, death is both something that has been overcome, but also something that, um, that, that the knowledge of which we can use to develop as human beings, I think that's what you get from those. What does your book teach us about ethics and virtue ethics? Well, that's kind of interesting. So, I mean, so Eastern Orthodoxy, I don't think has as deep of a connection to virtue ethics as the, um, for example, the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, but at the same time, so if you're talking about sort of traditional virtue ethics, like in terms of air saddle or something, but I think at the same time that there's a, a great deal of emphasis on this idea of the virtues as being a kind of um, a kind of a kind of excellence, a kind of development of the human being, you know, that we are capable of a great deal of beauty and that often we fail to live up to that beauty. I think that's sort of a central aspect of what virtue ethics is about, that due to being having a certain kind of nature and certain kind of capabilities, 
those things need to be actualized through living your life in a certain kind of way. And you certainly see that in, in orthodoxy, especially in the monastic literature, where they're talking about, you know, you need to train yourself. Like, that's what asceticism means, you know, ascesis. It means a certain kind of training. And so all this stuff about, like, you know, fasting, like fasting is a huge part of Eastern Orthodox spirituality. What, what you're trying to do there is that you're trying, to, you're trying to train yourself like an athlete would in order to achieve a certain kind of mastery, a certain kind of excellence. Just like, I don't know, Steph Curry, you know, shooting pointers for you know, hours and hours. It's, it's the same kind of idea. And so that, that is definitely uh, a huge part of it. With regards to Kierkegaard, I mean, he certainly he talks about virtues, but he, he does it differently than I think um, you, know, you would see in traditional virtue ethics. I think primarily, I think he's more interested in the ways in which um, psychologically we sort of have to contend with these failures in our life to live up to those kinds of ideals, those kinds of virtuous ideals, and what that means, how that moves us forward. Um, and that we finally realize that we are not perfectible through our own energies. Because there's an element in virtue ethics, especially ancient virtue ethics, where you know somebody like Aristotle would think that you can kind of become this truly virtuous person through your own power, your own energy. But I think for somebody like Kierkegaard, and, and I think Christianity in general, you need the grace of God in addition to your own efforts. Like you have to humble yourself and empty yourself in order to truly achieve some kind of excellence. There's a book that... I have read and really liked that's similar to yours, but it's in the Jewish tradition. There's a uh, thinker at Ben Gurion University in Israel named Jerome Gelman, who wrote a book comparing and contrasting Hasidic Jewish thinkers' interpretations of the Abraham Isaac sacrifice story with Kierkegaard's interpretation um, in Fear and Trembling. To the extent of your knowledge, who are the primary Orthodox Christian interpreters of the Abraham Isaac sacrifice story? Who are the most important Byzantine interpreters, commentators on that story? What are the most significant thinkers among the church fathers to reinterpret this story? And how are these readings similar or different to Kierkegaard's? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I am not really... So a lot of them talk about it um but it's not something that i've done any kind of study on really i mean maybe you know like thinking about it maybe it's something i should have done but because i mean it's such a central aspect of uh fear and trembling but i mean a lot of them talk about it but a lot of the stuff that i have seen um you know tends to be kind of traditional uh because i mean the traditional readings of the story a lot of it has to do with this idea of the faith of abraham and the way in which he sort of is able to overcome his doubt and he's able to follow god's commandment and um but also you know i've seen quite a bit um you know some orthodox commentators talk about they, they emphasize the fact that at the end of the story god provides the sacrifice right i mean that's one of the one of the differences between this god and a lot of the other gods that people had encountered because this before this god of the israelites revealed himself right because there was a lot of human sacrifice around those parts and when Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, um, God reveals himself to be a different kind of God. But the thing is that with Kierkegaard, what I find so fascinating is just that Kierkegaard seems to me to offer a reading of the story that is different from 
anybody else in any other tradition that I've ever seen, whether it's like the Jewish tradition or Catholic or Orthodox or whatever. I mean, he takes that story so seriously. And to some extent, he almost seems kind of angry at the way in which it's often interpreted, because so often it's interpreted in a way which sort of dismisses the horror of it. <laughs> it's just this sort of like, well, of course, it means this kind of thing. It has this, says this about faith, you know, this thing about devotion or whatever. But he thinks that you really have to kind of enter into it and feel the horror of what this person is being asked to do. Um, you know, he's being asked to sacrifice everything. Isaac represents everything to him. He represents the future of these people and that he's just supposed to give that up. And so Kierkegaard seems to think that, you know, we really need to appropriate this in this, what he calls this passionate inwardness. Like you really need to feel this and to really kind of think about like how this reflects upon our own lives. Ultimately, I think he does think that Abraham's faith comes down to the fact that he thinks that everything is going to be okay. That like God will not take this away from him. Like he doesn't know how, he doesn't know like really how that is possible if he's being asked to sacrifice Isaac, but he just has this absolute faith that in spite of everything, like that the, the promise will not be broken, the promise that God gave to him. And so Kierkegaard is trying, and but he's, Kierkegaard is sort of saying, you need to get to that point, but you can't get to that point until you've walked up that mountain, you know, psychologically speaking in your own life. And so I think that's that's what makes that book so so great and why it resonates so deeply with people. Martin Buber comes up quite a bit in your book. What are the points of dialogue between Buber and Kierkegaard? How can Buber's studies of Hasidism in the Jewish tradition contribute to understanding Eastern Orthodox Christianity? Well, I think the primary point of resonance, I mean, I think it comes down to that, the, the I-thou emphasis in Buber and in Jewish spirituality and mysticism, and, you know, which is also reflected in Kierkegaard. It's just, it's, it's, the, it's the deeply kind of personal aspect of it, I think. Um, so, because I, th I think similarly also, there's this kind of existential focus in Buber. Um, there's this idea that, you know, to really try to understand how we're able to have this sort of like deep personal relationship to God, um, to this sort of the, the ultimate other that we encounter um, that seems so distant to us, but is at the same time so immediately present. Um, I think that's this kind of stuff that Kierkegaard was absolutely obsessed with trying to figure out. And his, his entire philosophy, his entire epistemology, his spirituality is kind of based on trying to figure out how we do that. Um, the, the thing is that I... You know, I've read I've read Buber's some of his writings on the Hasidic tradition, but at the same time, like that's a tradition that I have not really studied very deeply. Sure. But even from my sort of superficial understanding of it, um, that's also a tradition probably where Kierkegaard. I mean, that's a very mystical tradition in very ways, many ways. And I do think that there are elements of that in Kierkegaard, but um, I think he's he's more kind of psychologically focused. But with regards to some of Cooper's others, other works, I think it's primarily in that idea of that sort of that relationality and the way in which where I think for both Cooper and Kierkegaard, this idea that you could ever have any kind of like sort of systematic knowledge of God or some kind of conceptual knowledge. Mm -hmm. That seems highly dubious. You know, they're talking about that knowledge here needs to be something that is extremely relational and very kind of intimate. How did the thinker Lev Shestov understand? Kierkegaard 
you note that his study on Kierkegaard offers, quote-unquote, offers Kierkegaard's reception in the Orthodox world in as much... I'm curious why you perceive, or why Shestov's study of Kierkegaard is so important. Can you comment on Shestov's book, uh, Kierkegaard, The Existential Philosophy? Yeah, I mean, he's a fascinating, weird figure. I mean, he's, you know, because Kierkegaard, his reception everywhere throughout the world is different. I mean, that's one of the things that I talk about at the beginning of the book, but it's sort of like trying to figure out who the real Kierkegaard is, is really difficult because, you know, the way that Protestants read him or the way in which, you know, the German philosophical tradition read him or the way he was read in America, they're also different. And like, and and Shestov is interesting because writing in that, that kind of Russian milieu, um, he has a, a particular reading of him, and he primarily sees him uh, in relation to Dostoevsky. I mean, it seems that Shestov pretty much thinks that they're sort of up to exactly the same sort of thing. Um, and I think that there are ways in which Shestov probably takes that a little bit too far. Um, there's a way in which, because th- this is what everybody does with Kierkegaard. They always want to appropriate him and say, like, this is our guy. Like, he's he's representing our tradition. And that's one of the things that I didn't want to do in this book. Like, I don't want to say that Kierkegaard is like actually sort of this pseudo Eastern Orthodox thinker. Um, I'm just doing this sort of comparative analysis where I think that there's, if you compare him to the Eastern tradition, it illuminates aspects of his philosophy that you would otherwise not see. You know, if you're only looking at him from like a Protestant tradition or from a Roman Catholic tradition or you know, a secular existentialist tradition. But so I think Shestov is a little bit guilty of doing this thing that so many people have done where they're saying like, like the Kierkegaard is our guy. Like he's, he's saying exactly the same thing we are, you know, and by doing that, by trying to relate him to uh, Dostoevsky. But at the same time, he, he is really kind of like, uh, there's, there's parts of that book, parts of it that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but there's a lot of his stuff where he's writing about him in a really kind of, I think, sensitive, beautiful way. And I think he's pointing out some of the same things I wanted to point out that, you know, like when Kierkegaard is talking about these things, like this sort of, you know, the absolute paradox, and he's talking about ways in which where human rationality fails or breaks down, like he's doing something that is very much in line with the kind of beautiful mystical tradition that you would get in Russia and Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, especially as you see it in writers like Dostoevsky, like in the figure of the elder Zosima and the brothers Karamazov, that Kierkegaard is to some extent up to the same thing. Which, I, which is something that, um, you know, I was trying to get across in this book, too. So I, I do largely agree with what Shesta was doing. It's just, like I said, I think he is an example of this sort of uh, kind of Kierkegaard appropriation. To the, extent of, to the extent of your knowledge, are there any significant readers of Kierkegaard in Orthodox Christianity outside of Europe? Are there any noteworthy Armenian Orthodox or Coptic Orthodox thinkers who engage with Kierkegaard? Are there any prominent Orthodox thinkers um, in the Middle East or in South America who have responded to Kierkegaard's ideas? There's very little. I mean, the, you you have a smattering of articles here and there, but like one of the reasons why I decided to do this project was because it was something that not a lot of people had written on. You know, like this is what they tell you and. Grad school is like try to find something which where there's not like a ton of literature already. And so that was one of the primary reasons why I was interested in this. Now, that, that being said, I, all of a sudden, I think around the same time that I was starting this project, um, you know, which was a few years ago, 
uh, you, you started getting a lot of kind of rumblings in the Orthodox world about people being really, really interested in Kierkegaard. So it's, I think this is totally in its infancy. Like there's, there's people all over the world, um, you know, and I think especially in America, like in the West, but I think all, all over the world that are getting more interested in him as a thinker. And I think you're probably going to see in the next few years a lot more literature on him um, in relation to Eastern Orthodoxy. But especially around the time when I was writing the book, like there, there weren't a whole lot of, you know, projects which I could refer to directly where somebody had done something quite like this, which was the reason why it was exciting to do. To the extent of your knowledge, how have Eastern Orthodox Christian thinkers responded to World War II, to the Holocaust, to Auschwitz, to Yesenovats? How have they addressed uh, the rise of communism and the plight of Christians under communism? How have they responded to the persecution of Orthodox Christians, whether as recently as of ISIS and the persecution of Assyrian Orthodox Christians, um, persecution in the Balkans, persecution in, uh, in the recent conflict in uh, Oz between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Armenian genocide. The reason I bring this up is, is there any contribution that Eastern Orthodox thinkers make to the question of theodicy, of how God and evil coexist, the relationship between God and evil, and how have Orthodox Christian sufferings in different manifestations contributed to thinking on this matter? Yeah, I mean, that's such a like a huge question, and it's kind of hard to answer because so many of these Orthodox countries have gone through such immense suffering. And so it's really defined a lot of the, the modern theology on this stuff. But one of the reasons why that question is a little hard to answer is just because one of the things that is kind of distinctive about orthodoxy is that it is not as um, sort of it's, it's not this completely singular entity. So if you're talking about something like Armenian orthodoxy versus Russian orthodoxy versus Greek orthodoxy, right? Um the Eastern Orthodox Church is one unified church, but at the same time, especially when you're talking about sort of specific experiences that people have had, um, you're going to get a lot of different kind of responses and a lot of different kind of kind of writings. Um, so, but with regards to like, especially something like, you know, if you're talking about specific things like the suffering under the communist regime in the Soviet Union, I mean, most of modern Russian Orthodox spirituality, to some extent, is a response to that. I mean, it defines the church in so many ways, um, in you know, both good ways and bad. I mean, so much of the, there's so many beautiful writings and, and you know, theological uh, meditations on that. But at the same time, it also caused the, the church to kind of splinter apart in some ways. So the, the Russian part of the church that, you know, went to America, for example, and it became isolated from the church that remained in the Soviet Union, there was this sort of, you know, a certain kind of uh, splintering that occurred there. So it's really those kinds of uh, sufferings and those kinds of, of horrors have really, really affected, you know, not just theological writings, but the very sort of institutional makeup of the church. But with regards to like theodicy, I mean, I think 
you know, like any, like any Christian church, like any, you know, Christian denomination, that is a huge part of the theology and the spirituality, because, you know, you have to try to contend to some extent with the problem of evil. Um, and so in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, theodicies tend not to be quite as, I think, technical and, you know, based on this sort of the same kind of syllogistic sort of reasoning that you see in some other Christian denominations or Christian traditions. I mean, you're not going to see anything like, you know, Alvin Plantica, <laughs> the way in which he tries to answer, you know, the problem of evil. Um, a lot of the ways in which the problem of evil is addressed is in a more kind of existential manner, in and through certain kinds of practices, in and through this participation in the sacraments, in and through the way in which the faith is kept alive during these, these, these times of horror. I mean, some of the most inspiring spiritual writings you can find in orthodoxy, for example, are these writings that come out of the gulags, you know, like, and, and, you know, there's countless examples of this, but just people that were, they were living the faith under conditions that seem impossible. I mean, they're almost on par with what the earliest Christian martyrs were experiencing mm -hmm. in the Roman empire. And so, but really what, what you're seeing there is not some kind of like intellectual abstract attempt at like figuring out how to overcome the problem of evil. It's just, it's much more this idea of like, how can we continue to live a life of goodness and forgiveness in the face of these kinds of horrors? Um, and you see a lot of this in the Romanian tradition, for example. I mean, the stuff that was done to the priests there and to the faithful was just, I mean, they underwent incredible tortures. And so, you, and, you know, you have people there talking about finding, you know, this immense repository of grace and love in those situations so it's I, I i find that most of the literature on this stuff tends to be like very kind of spiritual and and based on lived experience rather than uh some kind of abstract arguments or something which, which i appreciate because i don't think that there is any abstract argument that can solve the problem of evil <laughs> what are the pros and cons of the term eastern orthodox thought in regard to combining or bringing together very different traditions and thinkers under one category. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of that very term? Uh, yeah, no, it's a yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think um, it's a highly problematic term because it's, you know, you're covering so much. Again, you're covering all these disparate, different intellectual and spiritual traditions. Um, at the same time, I do, I do think that it is important to talk about you know, Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy as a kind of a unified whole, they they do share a lot in common. I mean, all these different churches are in communion with each other, and they do form this one religious body, you know, what they consider to be the original apostolic church, you know, the body of Christ. Um, so it's it's in tune with the, the, the theology of the church to talk about Eastern Orthodoxy in this way. But at the same time, it's problematic in an academic book, because you're trying to bring together so many different traditions. You know, it, it, it's this sort of hodgepodge of, of people coming from various different kinds of intellectual traditions with different kinds of philosophical presuppositions. Um, and you're kind of saying, well, they all represent the same thing. And, um, but, you know, that's just, that's one of these things that you always end up doing in, in especially I think academic writing is that you're, you're setting things up according to certain easily understandable categories. But yeah, absolutely. When you start looking at it, 
it certainly does have its problems, you know, because you're sort of oversimplifying a really, really messy picture. You write the following on page 267. As a personal aside, I can imagine that American readers may think that Kierkegaard is being hyperbolic, but anyone who has grown up in any of the Scandinavian countries knows exactly what he is talking about. When I was confirmed in the Icelandic Evangelical Lutheran Church, also a state church, it was taken for granted that one was participating in the ceremony primarily to reap the benefits of the family facilities afterwards and with their necessarily accompanying gifts and pastries. Children were, and many still are, pressured by their family and society to be confirmed, but anyone who took the religious elements of the proceeding seriously was considered to be more than a little strange. After all, actually believing in God might give the smear bread following the ceremony a rather bitter taste, and nobody wants that, from page 267. Can you elaborate on that passage? Yeah, sure. No, it's just, I'm just being kind of like, uh, you know, sort of cynical there. But I was just talking about, I was trying to explain Kierkegaard's view of Christendom and this idea of this kind of purely superficial Christianity. And um, so it's just this idea of this confirmation ritual ceremony that I went through when I was, you do this when you're 13 in Lutheranism. And um, you have to go through this kind of training. They teach you certain kind of basic element, elements of the faith. And then, you know, you receive communion for the first time. And then there's a party afterwards and you get a lot of presents. And, and there's always a particular kind of food. And Spurderbrot is this Danish kind of uh, open face sandwich that's often served in, you know, like in Iceland, the different kinds of pastries and stuff like that. And so, I mean, the point of this for most of the people participating in it was the, the pastries and the gifts and the, you know, that stuff. Like, you didn't really care. You didn't really care about, you know, this you know, they're presenting us with the Ten Commandments, and none of this was being contextualized. It's just like, here are these teachings, you know, from the Bible, which none of us had read, and none of us really had any kind of background in any of this stuff. And all of this just seems ridiculous, but you go through the motions, because it's expected of you. You pretend, you know, you fall into this pattern, so you put on this mask, and you play this role. And so, I just thought that this was such a, like, a funny example of exactly what Kierkegaard is talking about. He's basically just saying that for a lot of the things that we do in life, this is what we do. Like, you know, with regards to a lot of, not just your religious life, you're playing a certain kind of role and you fall into this rote kind of pattern, which is pure superficiality. It's just this pure kind of like pretension. And, but, but religion is especially, it's kind of crazy that, that people do this with regards to religion. <laughs> what should be the sort of deepest and most mind boggling and crazy sort of thing that transforms you in every single way just becomes this thing where you you know get these uh you know cinnamon buns and a few bucks at the end of it and you're like yeah that's great that's the important part not the you know living forever in the love of god like that's not <laughs> that's not the important part so i just thought that that was a great illustration of exactly what kierkegaard meant and something that i had experienced myself as we bring our dialogue to a close what are you working on next as your current project? Can you share with us what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm actually just about to finish a translation of uh, Callistus Ware's uh, book, The Orthodox Way. Callistus Ware is this really amazing um, writer and theologian. He just recently passed, um, but just uh, like a towering figure in 20th century orthodoxy. 
and one of the people that really introduced orthodoxy to the Western world in a lot of ways um, through his writings. And um, so he wrote this lovely book called The Orthodox Way, which was a big influence on me when I was studying orthodoxy initially. And so I, I've, I've been trying to translate it into Icelandic. And so hopefully it will be published sometime in the next few months by the Orthodox Translation Society in Iceland. So maybe maybe there are a few people who might encounter that book and maybe be a little bit inspired by it like I was. <laughs> That's the idea. I wish you the best of luck. It sounds incredible. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for doing this. It was great. Thank you for our dialogue today. I'm incredibly lucky for how much I learned from you. And I feel tremendously privileged to have read this book and digested it. I'm really lucky for this opportunity. Great. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. To our listeners, uh, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with August Ingvar Magnussen. He is a member of the teaching faculty, a senior member of the teaching faculty in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. We have been discussing his new book, Kierkegaard and Eastern Orthodox Thought, a Comparative Philosophical Analysis, published by Gorgias Press 2021. Thank you.